Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. This is part two of our conversation with Kyle Hetzel. Kyle is a zookeeper. He used to work with big cats and sea lions and giraffes and wolves and all sorts of other wild animals. But he's currently working in the children's zoo section of a large West Coast zoo. His focus has changed from the exotic animals to the barnyard animals because Kyle wants to bring what he's been learning from the wild animals to the handling of domestic animals. I met Kyle first through my clinics and science camp. Kyle shared some of the video of the work he's doing with the barnyard animals in the children's zoo. It was so much fun and so inspiring. In the horse world and in the handling of domestic hoofstock, there's just so much just get it done handling. There's so much do it or else handling. So to see Kyle training the goats and the horses under his care for voluntary medical procedures was really inspiring. It's good training, it's caring training, and there's a lot there that really needed to be shared. So that's what we're doing in this podcast. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation. So what we learned with Maggie, I brought to the facility that I'm at now and incorporating with barnyard animals, you know, that these animals can have a voice in participating in how they want to participate and can freely and openly communicate with us within the sessions. And it's just, it's because of these other animals and these teachers that I've had really make a difference in how we're going to be approaching a lot of these domestic animals moving forward. Because the, the common view of domestic animals is just grab them and get it done because they're a domestic animal. And yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's a, it's a cow, it's a sheep, it's a horse, just grab them and get it done. And that their perspective, their rich emotional life, we don't need to consider because they're just a domestic animal. So you're bringing a very different perspective into this and discovering that when you engage them cooperatively, that just really astounding things can, can emerge. So what have been some of the, what have you been trained? What are the animals that you're working with? And what have you been training? And what have you been learning? What is the ripple effect? Because this is in a zoo where people are watching and observing just general public. So the ripple effect in terms of changing how people perceive animals is huge. Yeah. And the training team that I have now with um, Amy and Elise, with the, the barnyard animals that we're working with now, um, it's it's all very much cooperative care. So it's exactly like you've talked about where I can't throw a halter on a sea line. I can't you know, I, I don't want to get into a physical restraint with the wolf. So why can't we take those same ideas and those same approaches and apply it to 
you know, the barnyard animals. And Amy and Elise have a tremendous amount of experience of their own to bring to it. Elise working cooperative care with gorillas and Amy working cooperative care with giraffe for 20 plus years. And all of us kind of having this united front and mindset about helping these barnyard animals not shed the label of, well, they're just domestics. Why do you have to hold a goat? Well, goats like to stand on things. Goats really like to stand high up on things. So we can create a behavior where the goat likes to stand up on something, make it reinforcing. And now that platform or that station becomes a medical station. And so the vets can come down and the goats know when they step up on the station, they get reinforced and that the goats understand that the vet is under stimulus control as well from us. That if the goat steps off, the, the vet's hands come off and that it's, it's, a, it's, again, that conversation that we're having. So some of the things that we've been working on are, uh, you know, halter restraint-free hoof trims, um, where the goat actually presents you with the foot to trim and you can go through and trim. Uh, same thing with uh, vaccines. We've done uh, multiple vaccines on our goats that are completely restraint-free. And that makes a huge difference because we have five goats and oftentimes you don't have five trainers. So right. being able to help one another watch each other's sessions and seeing the unique individual approach is really, really helpful to, to see how each goat has their different personality and different spin on their training sessions. And that, that training with the goats to kind of give a timeline of their learning history, their training started at the beginning of March of last year. And since that training, we've done the vaccines, we've done hoof trims, we've done a voluntary blood draw on one of the goats. And they've been just incredible teachers. And not only just for us, but other departments in the zoo are coming down and watching goat training. And, you know, we had a, a, another keeper come down and say, well, I'm having trouble maintaining duration with this animal in the zoo on station. We go, okay, let the goat help you. Let the goats teach you how to do this. And so the goats have not only been teaching us, but other keepers around the zoo. We also have a, uh, a couple of mini horses that are learning, you know, voluntary hoof care of halter free hoof care that they're initiating. So they know being able to move into us is their way of initiating the conversation and starting and moving away is an honored request. It doesn't mean they're getting any less food or anything else. They're still going to be able to cooperate and work within a session. Um, our, Male mini horse does a voluntary uh, freestanding blood draw. Um, he's older, I believe he's in his 20s possibly. And he's trained, the vet tech will hold out her hand and he'll actually move his neck into her hand to initiate the jugular blood draw. The, the big one that we are currently working on, our, our, our big project is the, the biggest guy in the children's room, his name is uh, Slider, who some of you guys might've heard some, some talking about um, the big guy and uh, his foot care has been really, really cool, especially within our team training picture uh, between Amy, Elise, and I. The vets have kind of learned if they tell us that it can't be done or you have a timeline to do something, that it kind of is a, a challenge that, well, just because it can't be done doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. And so we were told that cows can't stand on three feet. So you can't trim their feet. You have to just do it with them standing with all four feet on the ground. And we said, okay, we'll get back to you. And, you know, thanks to 
science camp and thanks to the networking that you know we had with coming and learning from you alex it made a huge difference in being able to train slider for all of the voluntary hoof care that he's received and you know again folding in all of the different you know animal teachers that we've had each of us have made a huge impact on slider and the language that we use when we're talking about his training sessions and the reinforcement that we use and we're working with him it makes things go really, really quick and being able to work through it. And it's, it's been really cool, like you said, with the public being able to watch. I was doing a, a crate session with a goat one day and somebody goes, why are you making him do that? And I said, oh, well, in case we need him to go somewhere, if we need to take him up to the vets so that he can go see the vets for his annual health check or we wanna take him on a walk to the playground, we can take him on a walk to the playground and put him in a crate and get him there. And if he doesn't want to go on a walk on the playground, he can choose to stay in the crate and that's okay. It, it's, and they're like, oh, you can do that? Oh, absolutely, we can do that. We can do a lot of things with these guys. We can ask them all sorts of things and they can participate. And so it's been really, really cool, even with the certain restrictions that we face with the pandemic about allowing people to see the work that we're doing with you know, the domestic animals and how fast they are to learn and how how much training we're doing in our section of the zoo really highlights to people that they're not just here to look at, but they're here to function within a system to help people learn. And I think that that's a really, really cool message, especially coming from the domestic world about what they're capable of learning. Yes. And I want to go back a bit, you know, when you talk about cooperative care, because there are many versions of that. Cooperative care can still be fairly, have a compulsion element to it. As in, if you don't stand here and hold up your foot, you will not get this treat that I'm offering you. The only way that you're going to get this treat is if you stand here and accept my touching you and picking up your foot. And the animal then has to choose, can I tolerate this contact enough to get this goodie that I want. Which is already a big progress from restraint. Yes, it is. It but is. But there's, yes, <laughs> but it is. And I'm, I'm on the continuum, right. you can go I, even farther. Yes, I'm, I'm making it sound really terrible, but it, yeah. it is. Yeah, oh, wow. yes. how awful. She's treating her dogs to uh, cut her nails. And, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and, and right. you know, it, it has happened to me sometimes where I know I'm putting my animal in a conflict. But once in a while, I give myself permission to do that. And I'm thinking, okay, there's a better way to do it. But this is much better than restraint. Right. Well, because she can still go away. It's, it's the Maya Angelou all over again. When I was young, I did the best I could. And when I knew better, I did better. So the right. first approximation in is you're going to stand here and I will click and reinforce you for continuing to stand there while I touch you and run my hand down your leg and pick up your foot and hopefully you will discover that it's not so terrible and that you get clicks and treats for it. But the, the more we explore this and the more animals that we come in contact with, the more giraffes who say, I want that brush from that person, the more you know we get better. So cooperative care means a lot more to you these days than that very simple linear description that I just presented. So could you expand on that a little bit? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's something that we wanted to be a part of our training picture. And when we're out working the goats, for example, we have a big contact yard that's kind of on the outside of the barn. So it's the part that the public actually can come in would be interacting with the animals normally. But since COVID, I've turned it into a, a goat playground, more or less. We, we went out and purchased these massive spools. There are multiple stations, there are multiple mats, cones, all sorts of fun things for the goats to interact with. And so when we're working towards a new behavior and we're trying to advance criteria to the next behavior, one of the things that we've noticed is that if we're advancing behavior and the rate of reinforcement has dropped or the animal is misunderstanding the, the next approx, we've found that our goats are actually going to their stations to ask for more information. They're not going there to get more reinforcement. They're going because they're like, okay, I know if I go here, the picture becomes very, very clear, very, very quickly. And it's been a great learning opportunity for advanced trainers and novice trainers alike to see this aha moment of, no, I need more help now. And we so it's want a place where they go to when they don't know what, what you want, what to do. Exactly. And, and our, our theory, our working theory that we have is that it was the very first thing that these goats learned mm -hmm. was to be able to station. And it was such a highly reinforced behavior that from there we train, you know, their recall, their, their healing, all of those behaviors came from the station. But the station has now become such a focal point for them that in the middle, like I said, of learning a new behavior, they will deviate to the nearest station and say, no, I need more information. And it helps the, the trainer kind of either take a half a prox or to ask for help or to have the goat, you know, be able to do something different to help figure that step out. And so we wanted that to always be a part of our training pictures. So when we're doing any of our cooperative care sessions, we always want there to not necessarily be a competing reinforcer, but an option to continue with their day if they don't want to train. Right. So if we're doing a blood draw with our Gotland pony, we have her breakfast diet is out in a hay net in the, in the corral space. We are inside and she can come in to initiate the session and get the reinforcement that she wants, or she could choose to leave completely and go and enjoy her diet. Right. We're also very conscious about the reinforcers that we're using that we don't want to ever be able to have something that is so reinforcing that it is putting them in that conflict where it's like, oh, well, I'll never get that if I don't come and do this. Where with our equines, we're using cucumber and celery. Oh, oh okay. Um, <laughs> I haven't tried that. So it, it, it was a, a big adjustment for me at first because you really have to pay attention to how you're cutting the cucumbers. You know, if you tell one trainer, go cut cucumbers. They'll actually Slice cut the cucumber them. in a circle and then she'll cut them in half and then cut them in quarters. So you okay. get a much smaller piece of cucumber where I'm used to cutting the cucumber into a slice and then halving the slice. And that's what I'm used to. So even paying attention to something as little as how we're prepping the produce makes a difference with each one of our learners. The Gotland pony has one preference. The miniature female horse has one preference. The male miniature has another and so we're not wanting to ever put them in conflict that we have something so high value that it is coercive, that we're always giving them the chance to leave the session, to opt out for another behavior that it's, again, kind of like we talked about with Rosie, it's a part of the conversation piece for us. That it's, it is in the sense of, this is what we're asking. If not, we can do something else and try and come back to it. 
but we won't ask it again. We won't demand it. And there are times, you know, Dominique, like you said, that it's an emergency and we have to kind of bypass that discussion. And a lot of those times we will actually have to bring in other trainers to help with that situation so that we're not tied and lumped into that. And there are certain times that I, I can understand that horse trainers may not have that luxury that we would have at the zoo with a larger staff, but we do our best to be mindful of that relationship and that, that trust piece. But usually when you put the animal in conflict like that, you don't progress uh, the same way you would. And there are kind of, I would almost say side effects to that. It's lumping really. Uh, generally mm -hmm. when you're doing that, it's because you're lumping. You haven't taught the animal all the steps that they need to know uh, in order to really cooperate. But there are times um, where you, you know, for medical whatever husbandry reason. reasons, yeah. you have to get the job done. And of course, one of the things that we're learning from Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz, you know, that, that he really emphasizes is, would be that under those conditions, we would want to make sure that there was some environmental change that signaled this is not, this is different. This is separate. We're just going to do it. You know, sorry about it. We, we know it's not the most fun you've had in, uh, recently, but it has to be done. And that there would be something that would signal to this animal that even though I'm involved in this, this is stepping outside of the normal progression. Only when I have my white hat. It's interesting you say that. There, there's a, a story, Dominique, of an orangutan who at a zoo would have to be darted occasionally for injections or various medical procedures. And once they started to make requests for behavior, the vet would show up and make the request. And if not, then like exactly like you said, the vet would put on a white hat and say, this is now, these are the events that we have to partake down in order to help get you the care that you need. But it, it, it is a really big part of it to understand that, you know, in talking to Dr. Jesus about the environment and how much anything can get pulled into that environment that we're so unaware of. Well, the um, advantage of the example of the white hat, if it's consistent, is that it allows the animal to relax when you don't wear the white hat because they know what to expect. They know when the white hat is on, this is what's going to happen. And you know, sometimes you do need that while you are teaching that, you know, you still have to proceed with some procedures, but of course it's better not to, but you know, life happens. Absolutely. And that's, and that's our approach. And another lesson that we learned from Lisa is, you know, the whole life approach of the animal and how we're teaching and how we're approaching training these animals and making behavior pyramids for them so that we can set them up for the most success down the road. And that... You know, one, one of the things that I thought was really, really liberating and interesting in science camp was that, um, when we had all these cases that were shown to us of animals that were engaging in behaviors that were undesirable, you know, whether it was cribbing or, you know, all kinds of behaviors, while you were teaching them something else to do, but that the two could uh, cope how do you say in English? Coexist. Co uh, Coexist. Coexist. Yeah. yeah. As long as the environments were clearly defined, that even though the animal was still engaging in the old environment, in that 
whatever behavior you didn't want them to do, you could still teach them the new behavior and it, it would be, it would still progress very well because the environment was separate. And for me, that was a big aha moment because it felt like any situation can be addressed then, even though it takes a while to teach something new, you can still do it as long as you keep the environment separate. Yeah. I mean, that really was, as you say, very liberating because often yeah. when, you, when you start out with an animal that's presenting unwanted behavior and one of them was a, a horse that had to be fed extra food because he was down in weight. He was a rescue, but he would pace in his stall and weave and weave and pace and weave and pace and look very badly. Very badly. I mean, uh, he was lame from it, like yes. almost on three legs. And he was probably using more energy than he was eating. And so clearly this is a behavior that you want to stop, but you can't just wave a wand and have it stop. So while they were working on the intervention that ended up dramatically and actually very quickly changing this behavior, that intervention occurred in a different environment, in a different stall. And then the horse was still being fed in the usual way in the other stall. And all of that unwanted behavior was there, but it was in the other stall. And all the new yeah. behavior was emerging in this new environment and could then take over and replace. Yeah, because eventually, I think at the end of it, he was going in the old stall, wasn't he? And he was fine. Am I correct here? Because eventually you could transfer it back to the original right, environment. Right. So event, I don't remember if we saw it in this case, but you, it, you could once it's right. well established. Yeah, and eventually he could, they could feed him his full ration in the training stall. So in a sense, they never needed to go back to the other. But the point is that we can sometimes feel really discouraged because the old behavior is still there. It's still and haunting it's us. so big. And it's so big. And it looks and, like it's going to take months to teach. Yeah. The new or that, one. Or that you're making no progress at all. You're not getting anywhere because you're, you know, you're you're constantly seeing that behavior coming back at you. It's that don't fight extinction process. And yet in the new environment, there it is, and it's lovely and it's clean and it's wonderful. So I think this the power of that in terms of when we start really being mindful of this connection between the environment and the behavior and then the reinforcers that drive all of this and that we see the significance of the environment and really learn to use it, how liberating that is. And that the yeah. old behavior, you know, if you put slider in the old hoof trimming situation, I'm sure you would see slider resisting having anything to do with people. And, and I think that's one of the things that is so interesting to me is in, in certain cases that we've had to, to bypass that and in, in, in the emergency cases where the animals that are under the, the cooperative care model that we're working with in those instances are really thrown off their game. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, why wouldn't you just do this within the training picture? And we say, well, yeah. like, it, it's just not possible. 
but the like you said the reaction of like okay well now i'm reverting back into that rolodex of not the cooperative care model it's it's a very it's a big shift like you yeah. said and, and there there are still times that we'll see it with um a slider session where he's you know in the middle of a session and all of a sudden one of the landscapers golf carts drives by and that's a big trigger for him it's a very very enticing stimulus for him he wants to chase it he wants to dig up dirt he wants to show those you know spanish bull roots of his that you see that kind of switch in his eye and that like the environment is the same that that corral that he's always been has always been the same where that stimulus takes place but the picture in which he's functioning in pulls him back mm-hmm. and it's it's very very unique to be in that position at his head of seeing that change in his eyes the ears come forward the head drops a little bit lower and then all of a sudden he catches a movement that i make of you know just shifting my weight and he goes oh and everything just relaxes just mm-hmm. comes off like his ears drop again his eyes relax his breathing returns but just that little stimulus of being in that environment you know the back corral where it's on the the back road where a lot of golf carts and landscapers will go by around the zoo it's still there it's still very present and you know we that's where we've created the picture for his hoof trimming to start and then the, there have been other cases that you know you see learned helplessness and it breaks your heart to see that animal go into that picture of oh here we go again and they, that just mm-hmm. like sinking in and just I, I i don't know what to do no matter what i do i'm going to be wrong i i can't fight it i'm going to lose and it it breaks your heart to see that that model kind of come back to life you know to see the two different ends of the spectrum of you know learned helplessness and you know arousal bordering on aggression mm-hmm. so yeah and and that's i think one of the things that plays in the back of my mind is that sometimes in the in the zoo environment you'd may not have the option to change your environment you know you may not have that other stall next to you to move right and you know in working with giraffe there was a particular trainer that they didn't prefer and if they smelled the fragrance that was associated with that person their behavior instantly changed that person could be 3 400 yards down the road they just stepped out from wherever they were and that scent caught in the air and the drafts would immediately change but it not- goes to show though that the change in the environment doesn't necessarily have to be that big for the animal to perceive it and so if you have a certain undesired behavior with your horse in arena you don't need to change barns to work on it i mean there were some interesting examples during science camp for instance where uh someone had to work with a horse uh in the same stall and the change they made was to hang a shower curtain in the in the stall and so that was different and when the training was over the shower curtain was taken down and that was enough of a change to uh provide an environment where the trainer could train and when yeah. you think about with the clicker training you know we set out a circle of cones we set out mats we changed the arena environment with those tools with those toys so we might not have been thinking about oh well, i need to change the environment for the stim- change the stimulus conditions but the effect of it was when you set out that circle of cones you're saying to the horse this is different from the training that you had in the past where it was make it happen training 
really important. Really yeah, important. It's important to understand that that subtlety, like you said, Dominique, that it's not doesn't have to be huge. It could be just really, really small. I mean, even just the association of a treat pouch could be enough of a stimulus change for your learner to be like, oh, that the conditions have now changed in a, in a favor that I prefer. Well, I'll tell you, we, we certainly um, see that in all kinds of things we don't want to happen. <laughs> you know, where our animals pick all kinds of things that are subtle in the environment. So we have to remember that when we are programming our, our plans, that they can be pretty good at perceiving those changes. Masters at it. Yeah. And there will be things that we can't perceive. Like the, the giraffe is smelling somebody's perfume and from 400 feet away, and we probably aren't even aware that there's a change in the air. We don't mm -hmm. smell it. So there will be changes in the environment that and, and a giraffe, as you say, looking at the world from 18 feet up, how that animal sees the environment is going to be completely different from how we see the environment from our height. So, yeah. Especially working at their feet, you know, you, yeah. you can see so much and, and, you know, the really, really skilled trainers like Amy and Elise have learned to just watch the shadows and being able to read the shadows up top and, you know, see a slight fly twitch in the neck and see like, okay, that approximates a little bit too much, like that reaching for that hoof that way. And it's seeing a muscle twitch and, you know, just a shiver go up in the shadow and be like, okay, I have to kind of reel it in. And it's, it's really, giraffe are just so unique in how you work with them and train with them. And that's why a lot of times that team training picture of having that, that observer on the outside can really help measure the behavior of all three participants in the session and say, okay, well, this needs to change or tweak this a little bit to help really create that successful picture. I just, I just think that's so powerful. So often when we're training, we're looking at, well, first of all, with horses, we're not seeing the whole horse. When you're up close, there's no way that you can see the entire horse, unless it's a mini. But, you know, when you're working with a, a normal size horse and you're standing in next to the horse, you're seeing parts of the horse. So you're always extrapolating out, you know, if, if this is happening to the front end, I have a pretty good idea of what's happening at the back end. But having somebody who's standing another step or two out, the things that they can see that you are not going to be able to, just physically not going to be able to see, is really so important. And that hearing you talk about, you know, is my animal holding its breath? There's a, you know, a change in the shadows, a ripple in the, in the skin. All these little things that we learn to pay attention to. And where people who are struggling with, you know, my horse doesn't like to be groomed or saddled or whatever. And they're looking for the solutions at too macro a level. You know, the horse mm -hmm. has been telling them, shouting at them, really, with uh, its behaviors. But we're not remembering to pay attention to, is my horse breathing? Yeah. Very often, you know, there's, there's like steps we need to go through. So you need to take this brush first, then this brush and this brush. What if the horse doesn't like brush number two? Is it the end of the world to skip that step and go from one to three? You know, I know Woody, he really likes the soft brush much more than the coarse brush. 
And so sometimes I don't use the coarse brush. I mean, if it's, and he doesn't get very dirty anyway, he hates muds and all that. So, you know, I think sometimes we have like these standard things we're supposed to do when we're grooming or whatever. And we can look at it maybe more from the animal's point of view and be flexible. Yeah. I mean, there's a giraffe currently that I'm working with that, you know, we were, we have what we perceived as the correct, you know, approximations. Okay. They learn this behavior, then they learn this behavior, then they learn this behavior. And being the more shy giraffe, she comes to training sessions. She's very, very, very willing to participate and be there, but can be spooked very easily. And there are two other giraffe that are very, very advanced learners. Like they're quick, they pick up stuff very quickly. Like you could practice starting a new behavior and three days later you go back to that behavior and they've the giraffe has finished it themselves. They've literally taken the next three approxes, they figured it out and they know what the finished product should be. And the particular giraffe that I work with, you know, doesn't have the repertoire that the other giraffe have. But you know, usually you you have the sequence of behaviors that you want to train. One of them for hoof care is being able to put their foot up and put it on a bale and curl their foot so you can trim the underside of their feet. And in order to do that, it, it's a lot of coordination on the giraffe's part. You know, there, there's a lot of big moving parts. They have to be relaxed moving into the side of the fence, you know, resting and relaxing into the curl on the bale. It's important. And it is a behavior that does require, you know, usually teaching your giraffe to be able to move in parallel to the fence. Then you need to be able to ask the giraffe to pick up that specific foot that you want closest to the fence. So there are all these little behaviors that you need to train along the way. Well, the giraffe that I was working with saw the bale and said, well, I can figure that out and see what the big deal is. And the two advanced giraffe have not mastered the bale, but the giraffe that I worked with, Eve, walks over and puts her foot and curls it on the bale very first session. And so typically, again, you would think that, well, she needs all these other skills to be able to do it. Well, not necessarily if that learner is showing that they're ready for another step, as Alex says, you know, you should move on. You need to move on to that next step because that learner is ready and you're just going to impede that process. And so it was neat to see the fact that she didn't need any of these other repertoire of behaviors to master a very advanced and complex behavior of, you know, a, a hoof curl on top of a hay bale. And, you know, the other two giraffe are still trying to figure out how exactly to put their feet in the coordination of crossing over their feet and lining up and not, you know, extending their foot over the bale or in between the bale and the fence. But Eve has just so delicately measured and balanced that behavior to just be so crisp and clean without any of the other prerequisite behaviors that were normally needed. And so, yeah, it's, it's important, like you said, Dominique, to, to make sure that you're paying attention to what that learner really, really wants to do and wants to be a part of. How do you do the hind feet? Carefully. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> let's go back. Let's go back to the goats. So, so with the goats, when you're doing the cooperative trim, so yeah. their foot would be similar in terms of the access that you would need. They're just shorter and smaller. So what is, what does a goat trim look like? So a goat trim would look like asking them up onto the medical station. Um, so we'd ask them to station on the, the, the more elevated platform that's different from the um, we, we literally took pallets and put plywood over the top of pallets, cut them in half. And that's the normal station. Okay. Um, their medical station is a, a larger elevated platform, the same width about 
18 inches and about three feet long. And we asked them up onto the station and it would be the, the very same cue as many people that ask their dog for a paw present. You know, they hold out their hand flat palm to the sky and the goat will actually put their, their hoof into your hand. Um, the train will bridge for the present. And then the, the person who's trimming would take the foot from the person, from the trainer and curl it and begin to, to trim their feet as normal. Um, okay. At that point, it's a, a continuous reinforcement. Um, as long as the goat's there. And again, we've learned that each goat has a different preference for how they want their continuous reinforcement. And that like. was so like, uh, with one of our Nubians, he really, really likes small pelleted grain for his continuous reinforcement because of how his trainer actually funnels it into his hand. Another goat prefers produce and he wants peace, peace, peace. My goat wants to shove his whole mouth full of produce. So he gets handfuls of produce. That is his preference. But if you don't cut them to the right size, the handful does not work. He does not prefer it. He will literally shove all the food out of your hand to get to the exact piece that he wants. Um, so yeah, each goat is, is very particular about their continuous rates of reinforcement. For the hind feet, what the, the, the trimmer will do is they'll put their hand most of the time on their back hip and the goat will pick step up with their foot and the the fairy or the yeah the farrier will catch it and curl it back um, to be able to do a freestanding one as well. Um, and then again, continuous reinforcement would take place for each goat. Some of the goats required a hip move-in prior to learning that. So instead of reaching out, making contact, we asked the goat if they would move into our hand to initiate the behavior as opposed to us reaching for them. That is one of the things that we're trying to, I don't want to say fade out, but work around the contact, you know, we don't, do we need to make contact with the animal or can the animal make the decision to make contact with us? Yeah, that's always, I think it's always where it starts. And when you start talking about cooperation, anything where there's restraint or that's where it starts really. When there's no restraint, when we're not taking the feed, everything starts to change. Yeah. And, and, it really is. If it a... were only that, you know, and of course, I mean, there are, once you start exploring cooperative care, I mean, you can go pretty far, but already not restraining, not taking, waiting for the animal to offer is a big, big step. I think the one of the big steps is, and we can go over, you know, what does this word mean, but agency, mm -hmm. where the animal is an active plays an active not a passive role in a procedure so i think of that in terms of if you were going through for example the steps of teaching an animal to participate in putting a halter on putting a saddle on you know putting a blanket on putting it's very easy to to have the animal stand on a station and i will do this to you versus you, you have an active role in coming to what I'm offering. So I might, I might not, and I probably wouldn't start, I know I wouldn't start with the object that I want my animal to accept, but I might start with, uh, say, a brush, and I'm headed for saddling. And what I would like is for my horse to actively come to the brush, to, to bring himself to the brush rather than my saying, stand there while I brush you. And I think mm -hmm. that's very, I think it's very different 
if I am actively engaging in versus just accepting the contact. And certainly there are places where I would still use the, just stand there while I do stuff to you. But the more we can involve them in, are you an active participant in this process? I think the more powerful it becomes. Even, you know, the example you're giving of brushing, if you're, let's say you're brushing your horse at liberty in his box, a lot of us will, if the horse is, is backing up, we'll just follow the horse back, you know, with the brush. Right. We'll continue to brush while the horse is stepping a few steps back. But in a way, you know, that's already more giving the horse less agency than Okay, I'll bring, so you're saying horse come to the brush. So that's one thing. If I decide that, okay, if in a, another situation is I bring the brush to the horse if he's standing still. And then yet another situation is I won't stop brushing on, until he stops moving, which was yeah. the older way of doing things. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's uh, to to have the horse come to the brush certainly is different from you going to the horse with the brush. It's how how much can I involve my animal in a true conversation? Mm. So I think the conversation becomes very flat and one-sided when it has simply been I've taught my horse and and this is not a bad thing that I'm about to describe. And it certainly mm. is a huge evolution over where we were, you know, when we first started to explore clicker training. It's not a bad thing at all to say, all right, I'm gonna have my horse stand on a mat and, and I'm gonna use the three second rule, meaning if I think my horse is gonna move away in three seconds or, or in four seconds, I'm gonna stop what I'm doing in three. So I'm reading my horse. I'm learning to read my horse. And I'm going to teach my horse that it's okay for me to rub my hand over him. And he continues to stand there. You know, will you accept my hand stroking your neck? Yes, click and treat. Will you accept my hand stroking your shoulder? Yes, click and treat. All of that is really good. And, and is this done on the cross ties or not? No, he's on a mat. That's, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Right, he's standing on a mat. Other... <laughs> right, right. I mean, I suppose you could... You could it's, still do you, it on a cross right, tie, but it's right. not the same at all. It's not the same. But if, if you are a crossover trainer mm. and you are just, you know, dipping your toe in, that may be where you begin. Yeah. It's not going to be where you stop, but it's, it may be where you begin. And beginning places are always just stepping stones to learning the next step and the next step. That's all this is. And I can certainly teach my horse you know, you, you are learning, basically you're learning polite grooming. I would like you to stand still while I stroke you, while I stroke you with a brush, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a step beyond that where my horse can begin to say, and all of us who have relationships with horses, especially during shedding season, have had that experience of the horse saying, you know, I've got an itchy spot here. I've got an itchy spot here and where we laugh and we start, you know, scratching their rear end because the horse has just turned around to us. And, and it's part of the pleasure of the relationship. So it's what you, Kyle, were describing earlier with the giraffe who's saying, I want this brush and I want this part of my body groomed. 
and and I'd like it with this member of the staff, if you don't mind. I think it's it's recognizing that there is more to the conversation than simply I have achieved in quotes good manners. So you know the first approximation in in the clicker training was we had to demonstrate that with positive reinforcement we could train our horses to be acceptable, to be polite, and to to show at least comparable safe ground manners to horses that were trained in force-based training. Because if, yes, I can get my horse to do all these cool things, but he won't stand still to be groomed, then all of the conventional trainers are going to be saying, well, forget this nonsense. Mm. I don't want this. So we had to be able to show that we could use positive reinforcement to teach our horses to stand still while we groomed them, saddled them, picked out their feet, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not a very high bar to reach for, you know, and, and Kyle, you're really showing us and with the zoo work, really that inspiring us to say, well, there's an even higher bar that we can reach for. You know, all this cooperative care of having an animal that is resting its chin in your hand and accepting eye drops. When I think about or pressure on their eyeball. I know. When I think of how <laughs> you know, I I'm how aversive I personally find I know anything to do with that kind of manipulation of my eyes. It's like, no, thank you. But that there is that cooperative care, that there is that two-way conversation. And that when you're grooming, it is very possible for your animal to begin to say, you know, within this context of polite good manners, could you could you just could you just go a little deeper on my shoulder because I've got an itch? And that they can begin to engage you in that conversation. And we can acknowledge that that conversation exists and we can reach for it. There's no good spot to interrupt this conversation. We just got in the flow and kept on going. And as I was editing this, looking for a good spot to interrupt, I just wasn't having any luck. So I just decided I was going to jump in and say, this is where we're stopping and we'll pick up again next time. And we'll be talking more about cooperative care. We'll be looking at what it means to let our animals say no how to use training plans, how to give shots while walking. That's a new one. And so much more. This is just, just a great conversation. As always, if you want to learn more about how to apply what we're talking about in these podcasts to your own animals, do visit my website, theclickercenter.com. There are so many resources there to help you, from the books and DVDs, the online course, my blog, and of course, the virtual clinics. So stay safe, everyone, and have fun with your own animal learners. And next time, we'll continue on with this conversation with Kyle.